Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, everybody, episode three, time of the podcast, it is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, October 26th, 2020, people. I hope everyone had a great weekend, and I'm guessing you did, because the Big Ten was back, Mountain West football was back, the Pac-12 is on its way, and it is finally starting to feel as weird as it sounds as we enter Halloween weekend this weekend. It's starting to feel like college football season, right? For the first time on Saturday, you're flipping back and forth, Big Ten early, SEC middle of the day, you got a bunch of screens going, Big 12's in one corner, you got Texas here, you got this there, late night, you got a couple Mountain West games to finish up the evening, so it was a great weekend, and there was a ton to react to and recap from the weekend. Obviously, with a little bit of a slower weekend in the SEC, I'll be focusing on the Big Ten. Do want to talk a little bit about my boy Jim Harbaugh, uh, you know, not going to spend a ton of time on it. I do feel like though we never give this guy credit for anything, right? When he loses a big game, he's overrated. Then we see on Saturday night, he goes on the road against the top 25 team, dominates in its complete crickets. So we will talk about Jim Harbaugh. We will transition to the other big game in the Big Ten, Nebraska going on the road and getting steamrolled by Ohio State. Obviously, Ohio State largely looks like we expected them to. But to me, the story continues to be Nebraska, and are they ever going to figure it out under Scott Frost? We will transition very quickly into that crazy Penn State-Indiana finish. Then what we will do is what I've done the last few episodes, which is take a very quick break, come back, and on the backside, we'll actually talk some basketball because a major story came out of the weekend. Arizona finally receives their NCAA sanctions or the NCAA letter of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Their report from the NCA, we finally know what they're accused of doing. Notice of allegations, the word I was looking for. Arizona receives their notice of allegations. We'll talk about that. We'll talk very quickly about uh, Kentucky getting a five-star commitment from a guard named Sky Clark. Another interesting recruiting story, and we'll get out of here. Kind of the reverse of last episode where we started with college hoops with Olivier Saar. We finished with college football. Today's the opposite. We'll start with football break, transition, over to basketball, and we'll get the heck out of here. Before we get started, very briefly, I want to remind you, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, 
do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, where you listen, all of those great things. Really does help us move up the iTunes charts. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com if you do have any questions for this show. And I would add, The YouTube channel is blowing up. If you guys like to watch and view and consume things on YouTube, find me on YouTube. Just search Aaron Torres or Aaron Torres Podcast. You will find me there. But uh, I started finally posting segments from this show uh, on the YouTube page to start the college football season. We're up to like 800 subscribers almost. So it's been incredible growth. I appreciate your guys' support. And a lot of good stuff from this show ends up on the YouTube page. So with that said, people, There is no more time to waste. Let's get into it. So much to talk about. And listen, if I sound excited, forgive me. Big Ten football is back. And look, it goes back to what I have really, frankly, been talking about since June, July, August, which is, man, I'm I'm just happy, right? I'm just happy that everything is back. I talked about it a ton with Cole Kublik on last show, but... I don't think everyone understands how much and how hard everybody has been working to get football back, and specifically in the Big Ten, where the season itself was actually canceled. Now, Kevin Warren would call it postponed to January, whatever. They were not going to play football in the fall, and I know I've talked about it a lot, but I am so proud of the parents, coaches, players in those communities that fought for college football because I do, and I think we all know, how important college football and football in general is in college communities. I talk to people at Iowa. I talk to people at Nebraska, at Ohio State, at Michigan, wherever. And college football means so much, and it was so great, even with no fans in the stands, to see Ohio State run out of the tunnel. To see Michigan, Minnesota, uh, Michigan State, Rutgers. How about Rutgers pulling the upset? It was just great to see that happen across college football. And so I'm happy for the Big Ten. As it pertains to the Big Ten specifically, look, obviously the biggest story all year is Ohio State. And we will get into them in a minute because the big reason why Ohio State fought so hard to, to play this season is because they are by far the best team. And they are the team that has a chance to win a national championship. They are the flagship program in this conference. And so, of course, Ohio State is going to be a theme throughout the season. But to me, the single biggest story out of the Big Ten on Saturday was very simply this. How about your Michigan Wolverines? Go on the road at a top 25 Minnesota squad that won 10 games last year and dominate. Final score, 49-24, and it was a complete obliteration. They dominated essentially from start to finish. Minnesota scores a special teams touchdown early. Minnesota controls it late, and we're going to get into the details in a minute. But as I look back on that game, and I look back on what happened, I think the thing that stands out to me, not just about this game, not even just about the Big Ten, but about college football as a whole on Saturday, what stands out to me is this. Why does Jim Harbaugh never get credit for anything? Right? Like, like, I mean, think about it. He goes on the road as a slight favorite at Michigan, plays a top 10 team or a team that won 10 games last year, ranked in the top 25, and steamrolls Minnesota. 
And I get that Minnesota isn't a vintage, you know, uh, brand in college football that when you win against them, you celebrate and you storm the field, but they crushed a good Minnesota team, a good Minnesota program, and it was complete crickets on, on Saturday. Nobody's talking about it. And so to me, that is the big story coming out of college football this weekend, and it's very simply this. Why does Jim Harbaugh get credit for nothing? Why doesn't he ever get credit for anything, right? When he wins a big game, like he did on Saturday, well, he's Jim Harbaugh. Well, it's Michigan. Well, he's supposed to. And then when he loses a big game, oh, he's terrible. He's the most overrated head coach in college football. Well, which is it? Is he really overrated? Because if he's overrated, let's give him credit when he beats a good team. Or is he just a really, really, really good coach that maybe hasn't quite gotten his program to that elite level that everyone, including himself for the record, expects? So, like, which is it? Which is it? Where are we at with Jim Harbaugh? And so that's where I want to lead the show. That's what I want to talk about. And I want to start with the game itself. As I said, final score was 49-24, to but that really doesn't tell the story of the game itself because the final score was really way more one-sided than you would even indicate from looking at that box score. Michigan falls down early 7-0 based off a blocked punt that is essentially converted into a touchdown. I think Minnesota scored one or two plays later, and then from there, Michigan largely dominated the game. If you watch the game, it was pretty one-sided from the beginning. They're up 21-10 after the first quarter. And again, Minnesota's only score is essentially off of a block punt. Michigan is up 31-17 at halftime and then cruises to the 49-24 victory. On top of that, let's never forget that coming into this season, this was not supposed to be a vintage Michigan team. This was not supposed to be Jim Harbaugh's best team. They lost Shea Patterson, their starting quarterback from last year. They lost three of their top wide receivers, Donovan Peoples-Jones, who had the game-winning touchdown score for the Cleveland Browns on Sunday if you were watching the NFL. They lose Nico Collins, who opts out. They lose Tariq Black, who transfers. They also, oh, by the way, lost four starters on the offensive line and a bunch of guys off their defense. And so when we looked at this Michigan team, we saw a team that lost a ton of guys off their offense, a ton of guys off their defense, that had no real expectations coming into this season. Going on the road, playing a Minnesota team that, as I've said a few times, won 10 games last year, and Michigan was a slight favorite, but I'll tell you this, I talked to gamblers all week, and the inside scoop was that most of the money in Vegas was coming in on Minnesota. Not just from the public, but from the professional gamblers. Minnesota had more money coming in and way more money coming in from the professionals, which means that the professionals thought that Minnesota could win this game outright. Instead, Michigan not only wins, but they completely dominate. Not just by the final score, but if you watch the game, their defensive uh, front, their, their front seven, their linebackers and defensive front were in the backfield all freaking night long. The, uh, the, the offense was phenomenal. You lose Shea Patterson, this kid Joe Milton may be even better. He finishes 15 of 20, 22 passing, 225 yards, and then pretty much everything else is by committee. You lose some of your top wide receivers, you still end up completing passes to nine different wide receivers, six different running backs touch the ball, and it was just a complete, convincing, fun, easy victory for Michigan. And so when the game went final, I thought, okay, cool. 
well, let's start the, the Harbaugh conversation, right? Because we, we crush him with everything. We crush him every time he loses to Ohio State. We crush him every time that he loses a meaningless bowl game. And again, bowl games are meaningless to everyone except for people who do not like Jim Harbaugh. So I assume, of course, that when they lose, it's going to be, well, we got to give him a little credit, right? On the road, top 25 team, 10-win season last year. Minnesota's good. P.J. Flex good. Row the boat. All that stuff. And it's crickets. And it's nothing. And so I'm trying to figure out where we are with Harbaugh, right? And look, I get it. I do understand all the stuff that you already know about Harbaugh. I know that this is now year six for Jim Harbaugh. I know that he is 0-5 against Ohio State, his biggest rival, the school that he was brought in to beat. I know that Michigan has not won the Big Ten under his watch. They haven't even won their division under his watch. They haven't made the playoff under his watch. And when you pay someone the money that you're paying Jim Harbaugh, you expect those kind of things. Maybe not every single year, but at some point, you got to beat Ohio State. At some point, you got to make the college football playoff. At some point, you got to be competitive with the best of the best in the country. And right now, Michigan isn't quite there. But to me, it's kind of the same situation with Kirby Smart, right? Like we spent a ton of time talking about Kirby Smart over the last three, four, five weeks. And like as critical as I've been of Kirby Smart, what is like the only thing that Kirby Smart can't do? Can't beat Nick Saban. Doesn't mean Kirby Smart's a terrible coach. Doesn't mean Georgia should fire him. Doesn't mean that Georgia is the worst program in the world. It just means that there's one team that they have a bugaboo against and they can't figure out. And that's Alabama. Doesn't make Kirby Smart a bad coach. By the way, doesn't make Lincoln Riley a bad coach that he wins a ton with Oklahoma, but once he gets to the playoff, he can't beat the elite of the elite. Oklahoma 0-3 under Lincoln Riley when he gets to the playoff, 0-4 overall. Doesn't make Lincoln Riley a bad coach. Doesn't mean we got to fire Lincoln Riley. But Lincoln Riley doesn't get 1-100th of the heat that Jim Harbaugh does. And I just think when you look at it from the bigger picture, I don't really understand why. I don't think it's really fair to Jim Harbaugh. Not comparing Lincoln Riley to Jim Harbaugh apples to apples. But if we're, we're going to give Lincoln Riley mostly a pass for getting to the playoff but not being able to beat those elite teams... Why are we not giving Jim Harbaugh somewhat of a pass? Because the one thing he can't do is beat Ohio State. Because, I mean, think about it, right? Like, everybody wants to crush Jim Harbaugh. Here is Jim Harbaugh's track record since he's gotten to Ohio State, or since he's gotten to Michigan. And anybody who's a longtime listener of the show knows that I talk about this a lot. But in his first five years, first five seasons at Michigan, this is now year six, he's had three 10-win seasons. Not bad. Four nine-win seasons. Really not bad. Five eight-win seasons in five years at Michigan. Does he need to beat Ohio State? Yes, he needs to beat Ohio State. We get it. But he is taking care of the teams that he's supposed to. He's beating good teams, and he's beating good teams uh, in all sorts of venues. Last night it was against Minnesota. He beat Notre Dame last year. He's beaten Penn State in the past. One team he can't get by is is Ohio State. And I look at it. Three 10-win seasons, four 9-win seasons, five 8-win seasons, for all the criticism that Jim Harbaugh gets. How many schools would kill to have the last five years that Michigan has? Because I'll tell you what, I watch a lot of Texas football. Texas football ain't back, baby. Texas football would kill for the five years that Jim Harbaugh just put together. Miami would kill for the last five years that Jim Harbaugh put together. Florida State, Nebraska, Colorado, Texas A&M, 
on and on and on and on and on. Auburn, all these schools that we think of as these powers across college, they would kill for what Jim Harbaugh has done the last four or five. By the way, you know who else would? Wisconsin, Iowa, all these teams that are good but not like – like, I just don't understand this thing with Jim Harbaugh. And so to me, yes, I get that he needs to beat those elite teams to put the program in that elite category. But I think when you look at what he's done, and I think when you look at the other thing, that he never gets credit when he actually beats somebody good. Like, where are we at with this guy, right? Because I look at what happened on Saturday night, I think about it, and I say, just, just, just let's play a little college football mad libs coach goes on the road loses his starting quarterback three of his top four wide receivers four offensive linemen puts up 49 points with a first time starter at quarterback beats a top 20 team if that coach was named ryan day oh he's an offensive genius he's a savant he's incredible if it's Lincoln Riley, oh my God, he could take any quarterback and turn him into uh, whatever. Heisman Trophy candidate. And it's Jim Harbaugh, and it's just crickets. And so when I look at Harbaugh, all I'm saying is, like, can we just give him a little bit of credit on anything? I'm not saying that we have to treat Minnesota like, uh, you know, like it's, it's winning the Super Bowl here. I'm not saying we have to treat Minnesota like it's clinching a spot in the playoff. But again, he's either overrated, in which case he probably deserves a little bit of credit for beating a top 25 team on the road with a first-time starter at quarterback, or he's properly rated, and we can't go crazy if he can't beat Ohio State this year. Like, like we just got to make a decision on him. And so I'm not going to belabor this point. I want to give Michigan credit, but I just couldn't help but think about this coming out of Saturday because you have so many narratives, right? Dabo's yelling at the media because he's unhappy about this, and Ryan Day and and Ohio State win convincingly, and Alabama crushes Tennessee, and they're all smoking cigars. And Penn State has this crazy win, and Kentucky can't figure out their offense, and Tennessee is a mess. And it's like... And just nobody's talking about Michigan. Nobody's talking about the team that goes on the road, beats the top 25 team on the road, first-year starter, quarterback, wins convincingly. And so all I'm saying is, can we give Jim Harbaugh a little bit of credit for anything? That's all I'm asking. I don't think it's too crazy. And yes, he's probably not going to beat Ohio State this year. I'm not saying that they're going to go on and win the national championship, that this year is the year that they take that leap, that they take that next step, because I just don't see it happening. But it's like at some point, man, we got to give this guy credit for something. And I feel like he's the only guy that gets zero credit under any of these circumstances. All right, very quickly, I do want to transition to what I think was really the other big, Big Ten game from Saturday. And that was what happened in Columbus with Ohio State. And as I said off the top, like, look. I get it. Ohio State is the story, certainly in the Big Ten, and maybe at this point in college football right now, right? Because when you look at Ohio State, you kind of sit there and say, okay, kind of know who Clemson is. When they want to play, they're going to beat everybody on their schedule straight into the college football playoff. When we look at Bama, we say what I've said on this show. Bama's already played the two toughest teams on their schedule. They already played A&M and beat them, already played Georgia and beat them. 
Now, maybe Florida gets the SEC championship game and gives them a little bit of competition. Maybe Georgia gets back to the SEC championship game and gives them a little bit of competition. Maybe LSU gets better and figures it out. Maybe Arkansas's defense is a little bit better than we even realize and give Alabama trouble. But for the most part, Alabama has played the two toughest teams on the schedule. And so we know about Bama. We know about Clemson. I think we all know that everybody outside of them they're not really a competitor, right? Like Georgia's not really a competitor. Florida's not really a competitor. A&M, with due respect, they're not getting to the playoff and beating Clemson and Alabama back-to-back. And so right now, I think you could argue that Ohio State is maybe the most interesting story in college football because it's like, we're trying to figure out, are they that team that can get to the playoff? Are they that team that can compete with Bama and Clemson and potentially take home that national championship? And to their credit, on Saturday... They largely lived up to the hype. Win the game 52-17. to 17. Justin Fields is phenomenal. 20 of 21 passing, 276 yards, two touchdowns. Had a rushing touchdown as well where he looked like freaking Barry Sanders sprinting towards the end zone. Twist, turns, touchdown, Ohio State. You know, turn on the fight song, whatever. But Ohio State, we kind of thought they would win, right? And so to me, the more interesting story coming out of this game is Nebraska. And when I look at Nebraska, longtime listeners of this show know, yeah, at times I could be a little, I probably, I'll say this, I do think I've probably been more critical of Scott Frost than pretty much everybody else in the college football media, pretty much everybody else in the media. Like, I do think I have been. I think last year I said, PJ Fleck is everything that, the media wants Scott Frost to be young, successful, ambitious, program builder, whatever. But before I like go in on Nebraska, I do want to repeat what I said last week. And that is that I do give Scott Frost a ton of credit, right? Because this year, when Big Ten football was on the front lines, he was one of the guys that was fighting the hardest out of everybody to get Big Ten football played. And I do think, in general, It would have been easy for a guy like that to kind of fight the other direction, to kind of stay in the background, to kind of keep quiet, to not be on the front lines and fight. When you're in Nebraska and you're coming off a four and eight season and then a five and seven season a year ago, so basically four and eight, five and seven in Scott Frost's first two years, like I think it would have been easy for Nebraska to just kind of sit in the background and say, you know what? If this season doesn't get played, I don't think that's the worst thing for this program. Give us another year to recruit. Give us another year to get some of these seniors out of here or get them a year older and to get this thing in a better place than it is. I can tell you this. I know this from talking to people across the Big Ten in August and September. There were some programs that were not fighting for this season at all. I don't want to name names, but you can probably figure them out. Not very good, long way to go. And I think there were a lot of programs that were kind of sitting there saying, you know what? We don't play this year. It's not the worst thing for us, right? So I give Nebraska a ton of credit for fighting for this season. They didn't have to, but Scott Frost, I believe more than anybody, was out there being vocal. Scott Frost, if you remember, Nebraska was the first school that said, well, if the Big Ten is going to let us play Big Ten games, we'll go schedule a bunch of -of out-of-conference games. We don't care. We want to play. So I love the competitive spirit, and I will give Nebraska credit for this. I thought for large stretches on Saturday, they looked like a much-improved football team. If you watch the game, you know that it was like 14-14 late in the third quarter, or late in the second quarter, excuse me. They were competing with Ohio State. 
They were playing well. And even late into the third quarter, they were in pretty good shape. They were down 31-14 at one point. Um, what's his face? Uh, Adrian Martinez fumbles the football. All of a sudden, a 17-point lead becomes 24 points, and it's basically insurmountable. So I do want to give Nebraska credit. <laughs> Before I absolutely crush them, I do want to give them a little bit of credit because I do think that they are clearly an improved football team. But I also got to call a spade a spade here. And I also got to talk to you about what I talked about with you last year, which is we crush Harbaugh for going 10-3 and and 10-3 and his first two years. But Scott Frost goes 4-8 and eight and 5-7 and seven and is now 0-1. And, and it doesn't feel like the, the, the gap is narrowing between him and the top of the conference, right? And it kind of reminds me of what I talked about a few weeks ago with Jimbo Fisher on this show after Jimbo Fisher and A&M lost to Alabama. I said, point blank. I said, look, I'm not saying Jimbo Fisher's a terrible coach. I'm not saying Jimbo Fisher has to be fired. But we're now in year three, and Jimbo Fisher's being paid absurd money. I need to know that the gap between Bama and the top of the conference and A&M is narrowing, and it looks to be widening. And as a credit to A&M, they bounced back, looked good, played well, beat Florida, and obviously they're in very good position going into the second half of the SEC schedule. But I'm kind of at that point with Nebraska right now. I'm not saying Scott Frost is terrible. I'm not saying he can't eventually get this thing figured out. I'm not saying he needs to be fired. He's a terrible coach. He's, by the way, he's not going to be fired. He got an extension at the end of last season. But at a certain point, I got to see some improvement across the board and not just in moral victories and not just it was close for a quarter or a half. I got to see some improvement. I got to see some close games. I got to maybe see a win. And I know that it's not going to happen against Ohio State, but I guess what I would say about Nebraska, my biggest problem is it doesn't appear as though that gap is narrowing and it's still very much the same problems that we saw last season. First of all, defense is good. It's not elite. I remember when I was a kid, and I know I'm just dating myself now, but you know, Nebraska was known as the black shirts, right? Best defense in college football. Nasty. They can't get off the field. And I do know that part of it is you're playing maybe the most dynamic offense in college football with Justin Fields. And there were a couple bogus penalties that had two guys ejected, actually, and they probably won't play because of targeting. They won't play next week in the first half because of Wisconsin. If you were watching the game, Joel Klatt was freaking out, and I think he was right about one of them. But the defense doesn't appear to be that much deeper, more talented, more skilled, whatever. But really, it comes down to quarterback play, and it comes down to Adrian Martinez. And if you listen to this show last year, Adrian Martinez has to be the most frustrating quarterback in college football to watch. And if you watch the game on Saturday, you look. if you didn't watch the game, you look at the stats, you think to yourself, well, he wasn't that bad. Look at the, look at the stat sheet, 12 of 15 passing, 105 yards, 85 yards. He's great. He played well. He's not the reason they lost. Watch the game. First of all, I mentioned a minute ago that if you watch the game, he had a massive turnover, middle of the third quarter. Nebraska's down, I believe, 31 to 14. So it's a 17-point game, but you're driving. You can cut it to 10. Everything's going good. Instead, he fumbles, return the other way. 31-17 becomes 38-17, and all of a sudden, the game's basically, or 31-14 becomes 38-14, and all of a sudden, the game's over. He also, on the very next drive, I should mention, takes the team down the field, gets into the red zone, 
has a wide receiver wide open and fires it a thousand miles an hour at his wide receiver, it goes between his hands. You got to settle for a field goal. And so to me, this is my frustration with Nebraska. The little things are not getting better. The little things are not being corrected. Quarterback play is not being improved when you have one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the program as the head coach. And so I don't know what the answer is. Maybe Nebraska really is pretty close to breaking through, and I don't think it's inconceivable that that could happen. Obviously, I'm not judging their entire season based on how they played against the number three or number four team in the country. And there were close games last year. I mean, they lost the last game of the season by three. They lost, uh, I believe, four games by four points or less. So in theory, they could be close to at least breaking through, to at least beating the teams that they should. I'm not saying they got to beat Ohio State or Michigan or even Wisconsin. They should be able to beat Iowa, though. Should be able to beat Illinois, who they didn't beat last year. Should be able to beat Purdue, who they did not beat last year. They got crushed by Minnesota. Love P.J. Fleck. They should probably be a little bit further along. And so I do think these next couple weeks are a huge barometer, a huge test for Scott Frost in the same way they were huge for Jimbo Fisher a few weeks ago. Because this is now year three. This is not year one. This is not year two. You can't blame the culture. You can't blame the old players from the old regime. You've been there now three years. You have your guys. You have your system. You have your offense. You have your defense. Your recruits are now juniors. So like, what is the excuse that things are not working out? Because there is none. And so I don't know if it comes down to a quarterback change. I don't know if Adrian Martinez just isn't the answer. And I think that the truth might be that he's not the answer and that Scott Frost is trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if that's the answer. I don't know what it is. But I do, I will say, these next few weeks I think are going to largely define if Scott Frost is the guy to get it figured out. Because it ain't getting any easier. They play Wisconsin this weekend. Now I will say, Nebraska may have finally caught a break because of the fact that Wisconsin, it appears as though that star freshman quarterback, Grant Wirt, Graham Wirtz, who was phenomenal on Friday night, that he may actually be not able to play because of a positive COVID test. So maybe this is the break that Nebraska needs. But they got Wisconsin this week, then they play Northwestern, then they play Penn State. And so these next few weeks are huge for this program. At some point, you got to narrow the gap. At some point, you got to be competitive against these good teams. At some point, you got to justify hey, I was the hot young coach. I got to prove that I belong here and that I deserve this job. And so, again, impressed by him overall, impressed by the fact that Nebraska is willing to fight for this season. But, man, I got to see some results. And on Saturday, I saw a lot of the same stuff that I have been seeing all along. All right, really quickly, we're going to wrap on the college football segment of this show with the craziness in that Indiana-Penn State game. Kind of maybe we'll tie it into the Auburn thing. I'm so tired of talking about Auburn. For people who missed Auburn, they had another fluky win. They had another call go their way. They had the BS call against Kentucky in week one. Touchdown that was, was, should have been a touchdown, wasn't called a touchdown. All of a sudden, Auburn wins that game. The Arkansas game, debacle at the end of the game. And they had another one where there was a muffed punt that wasn't called a muffed punt, recovered by Ole Miss, should have been uh, a score. Instead, 
They say Auburn never touched the ball when video replay clearly shows that they did. Never even bothered to go to replay. Auburn gets the ball back. They win the game. I'm so tired of talking about Auburn. I'm just done with Auburn. I think even Auburn fans are done with Auburn. I've never seen a fan base, and I don't blame them, that's been less happy with a 3-2 and two start to the season as they get ready for LSU this weekend. But with that said, let's get to the Penn State-Indiana game because it was the single craziest game of the season, right? Like the great thing about college football is you just get these crazy, quirky games that you just, like you can't even explain. You can't, you can't even explain how everything happens the way that it did. And this one was probably the closest thing that we've gotten to that in college football this year. And thankfully, this one, well, it was a little bit marred by the refs at the end, but let's get into it. So first of all, even before the ending, it was the craziest end to the regulation that I've seen in a long time. Indiana's cruising, Indiana's cruising, Indiana's up comfortably, well, they're up 20 to 14 anyway. Penn State pops a deep play with under two minutes to go to take a 21-20 lead. And you go, oh boy, here we go again. Welcome to life as an Indiana football fan. I'm not even an Indiana football fan, but I can tell you, Indiana football fans have been close, but not able to finish so many times, it's unbelievable. But but Penn State goes up 21-20. Indiana gets the ball back. They can't move the ball. Penn State uh, gets the ball back on downs. First play, and we're talking now, this is now right at the end of this game. I mean, we're talking... The end of 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 this game. Penn State gets the ball back. They're up 21 to 20 with under two minutes to go. Hand the ball off. All the guy has to do is literally just fall on the ground. All he's got to do is fall on the ground three times and the game is over. Penn State wins 21 to 20. Instead, he breaks free, realizes he's running in for the end zone, Kind of what Todd Gurley did for the Falcons on Sunday. Tries to hold up, but can't hold up. He ends up scoring. And in theory, right, scoring a touchdown is great. Except the problem is that if you had just fallen down three times, the game would essentially be over. Instead, scores, Penn State goes up 28-20. Well, you know what happened at that point, right? Indiana drives the length of the field. Indiana scores. Indiana converts. And we go to overtime. And by the way, even before we went to overtime, Indiana scores to tie the game up at 28. They convert to tie the game up at 28. And out of nowhere, the Indiana kicker decides to kick the ball on sides. And the head coach is going crazy, and nobody can figure out why. And everyone's like, what is going on here? Even the head coach is like, I have no idea what's going on. Penn State almost makes a field goal to win the game. So it was crazy before it even got to overtime. But in overtime... Indiana scores on the first possession, or Penn State scores on the first possession. Indiana gets the ball back. And on one play, they score. And then they decide to go for two. They're like, we're winning this right now. We're going for the win. We don't care. We're trying to get that dub, whatever. And their quarterback, Michael Penix, he's a lefty. He rolls out to the left, sees the end zone. Remember, they're down one at this point because it's in overtime. Penn State has kicked the extra point. And this kid, Michael Penix, dives for the end zone, hits the pylon with the ball, ball game, game, Indiana, celebration, let's party. Just one problem. We go to the officials' reviews, and (laughs) it's pretty tough to tell, but it looks as though 
the ball hits both the ground in front of the pylon and in front of the goal line, and that it goes out of bounds before it ever touches either the goal line or the pylon. Now, depending on what Twitter feed you follow, I put out a picture that I thought was pretty definitive that makes it look like, wait a second now, it does not look like this ball touched the pylon or the goal line before it goes out of bounds. But there's other views that, you know, whatever. The issue, though, is that it was clearly, it was clearly called a score, a two-point conversion on the field, and so you need definitive evidence to overturn that call in overtime. And so all I would say is, listen, I love a good referee controversy as much as anybody else. Two weeks ago, I came on this show and I said, Arkansas got screwed out of a, out of a win. They should have gotten a win against Auburn. It was unfair. The ref screwed Arkansas, which they did. But this one, I don't think I can, right? Like, I think when it happened in real time, I was definitive. It's the wrong call. Penn State should have won. They should have survived. The ball didn't touch the goal line. But the more that I think about it, the more that I think that this is one of those crazy replay reviews where unfortunately, whatever the call is on the field, there isn't enough evidence to overturn it one way or the other. And so that was kind of the quirky part about this play. If it was called out of bounds or that it did not break the plane before it touched the ground or was out of bounds, I don't think there was enough definitive proof to overturn it. But it was called good on the field, and I just think it's one where I don't think there was enough definitive proof the other way to prove that it was definitively out of bounds before it crossed the goal line, before it touched the pylon, and Indiana gets the win. And so what I would say is, if I was a Penn State fan, and we do have a lot of Penn State fans that listen to this show, I kind of see both sides. Like, I had some Penn State fans that were like, that's the biggest BS ever. Then I had other Penn State fans that were like, dude, if we had just fallen down on the goal line in regulation, the game's over, and we're not even talking about this. So for Penn State fans, I feel sorry for you. I think the call was wrong, but the more reviews, the more replays, everything that I look at, I don't think there was the definitive uh, uh, ruling, the definitive, definitive view to show that Penn State should have won that game, even though I do think they should have won the game. Sorry, Penn State fans. Congratulations to Indiana fans, by the way, on the W. All right. I think that's enough football talk for right now. Uh, I will come back here momentarily. couple big college basketball stories, as I said. Arizona finally getting their notice of allegations from the NCAA. I'll talk a little bit about that. I will talk about... Um, I will talk about Kentucky getting a five-star commitment and another really interesting story on the recruiting front. I think now is a good time to take a break, though. Like I said, SEC fans, and we got a ton of them that listen to this show, there just wasn't much that happened in your league this year, this week. I'm not going to spend 45 minutes talking about, uh, you know, Tennessee beating, getting beat down by Bama. I just, I don't have it in me to talk about Kentucky's offense again, which fell flat again quarterback switches, coaching, what, like, I just don't have the energy for it, so we're going to switch over to basketball here momentarily, I'm going to take a break, I will be back in a second. All right, I'm back, I hope you guys enjoyed that whole five second window without me, I know you missed me, but I am back, and I do want to transition into some basketball because as much as I love college football, obviously a big part of what I do, I may be best known for college basketball, and I will say this. Out of every question that I get asked about, more than anything else, 
I get asked about this FBI probe as it pertains to college basketball, and more specifically, when is everyone going to get punished, right? Because it has been over three years since the FBI first got involved in college basketball, September of 2017, if it feels like a lifetime ago, it largely was, and really outside of Oklahoma State, Nobody has received a punishment yet, right? Oklahoma State did get that one-year postseason ban. We had their head coach, Mike Boynton, on this show in, uh, I think it was maybe June or July to discuss it. But outside of that, we have not really seen anything or anyone get punished for this process. But even with that being said, Arizona is the one that I get asked about the most because other schools are at least further along in the process, right? Kansas got their notice of allegations over a year ago. They're already actually, frankly, in the final stages. NC State in the final stages got their notice of allegations over a year ago. Louisville got their notice of allegations in the summer. Oklahoma State, as I said, is done with the process. Arizona, as of last week, had not even heard from the NCA. So we finally get clarification late last week that they have in fact received the notice of allegations. And for people who forget the process, the notice of allegations is the first step. It is when the NCA basically calls up your school or sends a report to your school. They have come to your school. They have interviewed everybody that they want to interview. They have talked to everyone that they want to talk to. And they send you a report uh, explaining what they have found you guilty of doing. So that is the first step. And that is where Arizona is at at this specific moment. They received their notice of allegations on Thursday. And on Sunday, we get the first report of what is in that notice of allegations. It comes from Seth Davis from The Athletic. He reports that there are nine violations, five level one violations, which are the worst of the worst. And so obviously that's not good. (laughs) Not good at all. And it's obviously uh, not a great moment for Arizona basketball. But listen, it is not necessarily what you think it is either. For people who want Sean Miller to get his comeuppance and it's finally his time to face the music, I'm not saying that won't happen, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than you think. And as basically the only person in the national media that to any degree has defended Sean Miller, I want to explain everything why Arizona fans are frustrated, why I believe the Arizona basketball program is frustrated. And let me get into it. And and again, I'm not here to defend Sean Miller, but I want to present both sides because I think everyone outside of Tucson doesn't really understand everything that is going on. And so to backtrack, first of all, we got to go back to 2017. As I said, if it feels like a lifetime ago, it's because it largely was. It was so long ago, it was when uh, DeAndre Ayton was, of course, first arriving on a college campus, uh, Kevin Knox at Kentucky, Marvin Bagley at, uh, at Duke. So it was a long time ago. It was before Zion, right? So Zion wasn't even playing last year. He played the year before. It was the year with Trey Young. It was the year with Michael Porter. If it feels like a lifetime ago, it's because it was. But the bottom line remains is that back then, Arizona was one of the four schools that was initially involved in the first wave of arrests. They had an assistant coach named Book Richardson who was arrested. We later found out that Book Richardson had given had taken $15,000 from an agent to give to Javon Quinterly, who is now at the University of Alabama. 
And so why I bring that up, I do think that's important because throughout this process, there were a lot of other accusations. There were a lot of other things that were pinned to Arizona. But until we actually see that notice of allegations, we don't know exactly what Arizona is actually accused of and what Sean Miller specifically is accused of. And I do think that's important. And I do think it is why this is probably, of all the cases, the most convoluted of them all, right? Because I think when you look at some of the other cases, like, look, I talk about it all the time. Kansas, Bill Self, we have text messages that have Bill Self talking to Adidas representatives about players. Um, You look at Memphis, it's pretty cut and dried. Penny Hardaway, although it's not an FBI case, Penny Hardaway's like, yeah, I helped James Wiseman move to Memphis. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong at the time. I guess I was considered a booster, whatever. So some of these cases are more cut and dried. Where Arizona's is complicated is this. They've been painted with this big, broad brush as this terrible, egregious, rule-breaking program. And as of right now, all we know is that an assistant coach took $15,000 to give to a kid who was committed to the program at the time. Not to say that Sean Miller wasn't involved, not to say others weren't involved, but as of this second, that's all we really know. And so I do think it's important, and I do think it's why this case is kind of convoluted, and I do think it's why Arizona fans are so frustrated, because the national coverage of this story does not reflect that, and not only does the national coverage of this story not reflect that, there have been reports that have been put out that are frankly just not true. There have been other reports that accuse uh, you know, the, the, the program of things that they're not actually guilty of. And of course, there are other programs that seemingly don't get criticized for anything, even though they themselves are involved. And so I think it's important to note, one thing that this case does not include is Sean Miller getting on the phone with Christian Dawkins and offering Christian Dawkins $100,000 to pay DeAndre Ayton, to pay DeAndre Ayton to play at Arizona. That's important because that was the report that essentially painted Arizona as this egregious, awful rule-breaking program. And I've said it on this show many times. Yes, I went on Twitter that night, and when that report came out, I said, it's over for Sean Miller. He's done. It's a wrap. And then you start to kind of peel back the layers of that And it doesn't make sense. And I've talked about it, and I'm not going to get into it, but I bring this all up because it's important to note that that actually never happened. An ESPN report that accused Sean Miller of offering Christian Dawkins $100,000 to pay DeAndre Ayton never happened. You know, I know that because Christian Dawkins, under oath in a court of law, said it did not happen. So you have that story, which is a pretty big story. And then, oh, by the way, ESPN doesn't really retract the story. It just kind of gets brushed under the rug, and the reporter who reported that story, you kind of don't really hear from anymore. And so, like, yeah, Arizona fans are frustrated. They're like, dude, that didn't happen. Like, it literally didn't happen. The guy said in a court of law it didn't happen, and nobody wants to talk about it. So you have that situation. You have the big, broad story of, oh, Sean Miller's caught on a wiretap. Well, we heard those calls. They were on the the scheme documentary, which, by the way, first of all, did not paint Book Richardson bad in any way at all. Book Richardson looked innocent. They were trying to stuff money down his pocket to take, but that's neither here nor there. The bottom line remains is that if you watch the scheme, these big, crazy uh, recordings that had Sean Miller, you know what he's talking about? 
He's talking about how they're not even recruiting Nas Reed because Will Wade, according to Sean Miller on the wiretap, Will Wade's already, quote unquote, taking care of him. I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to I'm not here to accuse Will Wade of something. It is just an accusation from Sean Miller. But if you actually listen to the wiretap, all he said was, "Will Wade's got some big balls. Will Wade already 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 did something and I'm not even going to try to recruit this kid cuz I got no chance at him." I don't know if that makes Sean Miller innocent, but I know it certainly doesn't make him guilty because another program was willing to cheat, and I know it certainly doesn't make him guilty because ESPN got a report wrong on DeAndre Ayton, and so hopefully now you kind of understand why Arizona fans are are frustrated. I think Arizona fans are in a lot of the same position that I am right now, which is nobody is saying that Sean Miller is 100% innocent, but we can only go based on the facts that we have, and you can understand where an Arizona fan feels like the media is out to get them when ESPN screws up a report. HBO plays up these big, we have these wiretaps where Sean Miller is talking about another coach. Like you can understand where an Arizona fan is frustrated. And so as we look forward, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say that the five level one violations are great because they're not. But guess what? You know who else got accused of five level one violations that's currently in the middle of the NCAA crosshairs? Bill Self. Kansas, Kansas five level one violations. And we actually have text messages of Bill Self uh, texting with Adidas representatives to help set up a recruit with a payment. We don't have that for Sean Miller. We don't have that for Arizona. We don't have any of that. What we do for the assistant coach, but he lost his job. He's not involved with the program anymore. And again, even him, if you actually watch the documentary, the poor guy basically got set up Uh, And things were out of his control. And so to me, when I sit here and I look at this situation, this goes back to what I have talked about a million times on this show. Not saying Sean Miller is innocent. What I am saying is it is incredible how certain media paints certain programs and paint Arizona the opposite, right? Think about how Kansas has been painted throughout all this. Never forget Bill Self last year at his midnight madness, has strippers, has money guns, has a big money chain. Oh, it's a big joke. It's so funny. (laughs) Bill Self, he's so funny. That's so funny. He's thumbing his nose at the NCAA. Sean Miller, meanwhile, let's throw some dirt on that guy's grave because that guy's the worst human being that's ever walked the face of the earth. How about Bill Self this summer? There was the report that he may sue the NCAA because he felt like his image and his personal um, you know, livelihood was being changed by their allegations. You got Jay Billis on Twitter. He should sue the NCAA. The same Jay Billis who was crushing Sean Miller on college game day. And so again, you understand why Arizona fans are mad when Kansas, it's like nobody even acknowledges what Kansas is accused of doing, but Arizona has been painted as the dirtiest program in the history of college basketball. And what's interesting about this as we look forward is what's going to happen next. Because we're going to find out from a third-party independent counsel whether Arizona actually is as dirty as the media has made them out to be. Because this is the interesting part. Arizona has joined all of these other programs in going to this third-party independent counsel. And to backtrack, let me explain this really quick. I have explained this a few times in the past, but for people who are new to the show, for people who are here specifically for the Arizona segment, let me explain. The way that all these NCAA infractions cases have worked throughout the history of time is this. 
the NCAA accuses you of breaking a rule. They do what I said a minute ago. They go, they come to campus, they interview a bunch of people, they give you the notice of allegations, and then to avoid punishment, you have to go back in front of the NCAA and argue why their notice of allegations, why what they told you you did wrong, why they're actually wrong. And if you think about it, it's the most absurd process ever, right? And it's something I've talked about on this show, but imagine you get arrested for a crime. Imagine somebody says you stole a candy bar from uh, you know, a 7-Eleven, whatever. And a cop arrests you, puts cuffs on you, throws you behind jail, and you say, well, wait, wait, wait till I have my day in court. Wait till I can prove that this cop doesn't know what he's talking about. And then the cop is the person that decides whether you're guilty or not when you get to court. You show up with court, you got your suit on, you got a new lawyer, you're feeling good, and the cop that, that arrested you is the one that decides whether you go to jail or not. Probably not feeling too good, right? Because that cop has a vendetta or at least wants to prove that he or she was right. And that's basically been the NCA enforcement process for the last 100 years. I mean, Jerry Tarkanian was complaining about this stuff 50 years ago. You guys accuse me of something, and then I got to go defend myself in front of you. Makes no sense. And so, what's interesting about this Arizona case is that they have joined all of these other schools in going in front of this new independent council that will determine their punishment for NCAA violations. So as part of the FBI scandal, one of the things that came out of it, if you remember Condoleezza Rice, she puts together a commission, they make suggestions. One of them is that you have this independent council determine NCAA punishments. So the NCAA still comes to your campus, still gives you the notice of allegations, you still talk to them, appeal them, whatever, but then the final verdict is decided by this independent council. And so, so Arizona has decided that they will take their chance in front of this independent council, which is something that a lot of these programs are doing. Memphis has decided to do it with the James Wiseman stuff. Um, uh, NC State has decided to do it. Kansas has decided to do it. I believe Louisville has decided to do it, but I'm not really sure. And so I bring it up because that is why this idea that, oh, Sean Miller, he's done. Count him down. Days are ticking. He's obviously out of there. Well, we'll see. Because this independent council doesn't work for the NCA. This independent council has no, in theory, personal biases or prejudices, or they weren't the ones that did the investigation. They don't want to throw you away and lock away the key. They just want to punish you fairly. So does that mean that Sean Miller is going to get away scot-free? Of course not. There are still head coach responsibility clauses, and even if he's found guilty of doing nothing, he could still face a suspension. He could still face a, a, a punishment of some sort. Not to say he will, not to say he won't, not to say it won't be worse, but we just don't know because the one thing about this independent council, nobody has actually finished the process of going in front of them, and we won't see how they handle these cases. But Arizona is the latest one to go in front of them because they basically don't feel like they can get a fair shake from the NCA by going in front of them. And so from there, we'll see what happens. And maybe Arizona is found really guilty and Sean Miller ends up losing his job. Or maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't as bad as we think. But we will see what happens going forward with that. One last thought on Arizona. We'll get to Scott Clark and we'll get out of here. And that's this. Is that I've seen a lot of this on social media, which is... Why is Arizona fighting for Sean Miller? He's never won anything. Who cares? Just fire him and be done with it. Arizona, in defense of people who say that, Arizona is the best program, in my opinion, west of Lawrence, Kansas. 
In other words, they're the only program west of Kansas that is actually equipped to compete with Kansas and Kentucky and Duke and North Carolina. Only one. Has the fan base, has the resources, has the, the, the financial support, has the facilities. UCLA's got a bunch of banners from the 1960s. Arizona, I'm telling you, is the best equipped team on the West Coast to compete for national championships. So a lot of people say, why doesn't that school just get rid of Sean Miller? They can get somebody else. They can get somebody good. They don't need this guy. Well, first of all, I would argue, I would, I would, I would basically, th- the argument that Sean Miller hasn't won anything, I'd throw it on the ground and squash it like a bug, okay? That's first. Guys won five Pac-12 regular season titles, three Pac-12 tournaments, five Sweet 16s, three Elite 8s. He's like literally a shot or two away from going to multiple Final Fours. So that's one. Don't tell me he hasn't won anything because there's a lot. I talked about Jim Harbaugh earlier in the show. There's a lot of programs that would love the success of Sean Miller over the last couple years. But two, the reason that they're fighting for him is because a lot, because my understanding is a lot of what I've already said. It's not that the Arizona Board of Trustees or the school president or whatever thinks that Sean Miller is some you know stand-up guy, greatest guy in the world. What they do think, though, is that the guy's gotten completely railroaded in this process. That the guy got accused of a bunch of stuff that ESPN had to retract that isn't true, and they're just kind of standing up for their guy. They're just kind of sitting there saying, like, we don't know if all this is true, but we're damn sure not going to fire him off of what y'all said because y'all have been proven wrong. And so I kind of give Arizona credit for it. And everybody's sitting there saying, oh, they should just get rid of him. Wouldn't you want your school to do the same? Tennessee fans, if Rick Barnes was accused of something and you truly believed in your heart of hearts that he did not do it, that he was getting railroaded, would you not want your school to stand up for him? Arkansas fans with Eric Musselman. Kentucky fans with John Calipari. Louisville fans with Chris Mack. North Carolina fans with Roy Williams. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you want your school to stand up for him? And so that's where I'm at with Sean Miller. I don't know what he did. I do know what's going to come out, not only in this notice of allegations, but with this independent counsel. But I don't blame the school for fighting for him because they believe that he's getting railroaded by the media and by the NCA. So it'll be fascinating to see, but that is the update. And as we get more details, we'll continue to talk about it. But we've been waiting for Arizona, waiting for Arizona, waiting for Arizona, and we did finally get some clarification today or this weekend, at the very least, as to what happened at Arizona. All right, switch gears to a couple kind of recruiting notes really quick, and we'll get out of here again. Somehow this show is running longer than I was anticipating, but what are you going to do? When AT gives you good content, AT gives you good content. All right, so the topic I want to get to, um, another really, really good week for Kentucky. Um, And so Kentucky last week gets the Olivier Saar news, big man from Wake Forest, all ACC center, transfers, not sure if he's going to be able to play, officially cleared he can play. Well, a day after that, Kentucky gets a commitment from a five-star guard by the name of Sky Clark. Touch the sky, baby girl, testify, Sean Clark, uh, Sky Clark. And normally I don't talk about high school juniors committing to colleges on this show, but I do think it's important for a couple reasons. The first one is he's really good. He actually spent his sophomore year last year in California. I've seen him play a few times in person. Love his game. Um, I don't get a chance to see all the great high school players, but I take that back. I've seen pretty much all the great high school players by their senior years. I haven't seen all of them as sophomores, 
But he was really good, man. He's about 6'3", 6'4", tough shot maker, play on the ball, play off the ball, creates for others. And what I really liked about him was he was tough. Like he has that Kentucky toughness that you need to succeed at Kentucky. He walks into the gym. He thinks he's the best player there. He's coming for your heart. So I've really enjoyed watching him play in my limited experiences with him. He's now living on the East Coast, and he committed to Kentucky for 2022. I also think it's important for a couple different reasons. One, from my understanding, just following social media and talking to people in the basketball world, he's a great foundational piece for your recruiting class because he can convince other guys to come with you, right? It's always good to get that first guy in because then he goes out and says, come play with me, come play with me, come play with me. And he is the kind of guy that other players want to play with. And so it's huge for Kentucky to have that kid committed for 2022 because then you have the potential to have him spend a year building the recruiting class. Now, I do think what's interesting about this kid specifically is, is he actually going to stay in 2022, right? And that's the big thing with college basketball these days is if a kid commits, you always wonder if he is going to stay in his class, especially if he commits early, you're always kind of trying to figure out, okay, um, is this kid actually going to stay in his class or is he going to move up a year and come to college a year early? Now, normally, when a kid commits the beginning of his junior year, my inclination is always that he'll end up in college the following season. Um, In this kid's case, I'm not so sure. Kentucky has Devin Askew, a freshman this year. They have a point guard committed for next year named Nolan Hickman. And so, on the one hand, I could see the scenario where this kid decides to say, you know what, I'm just going to stay in 2022, I'm going to recruit for that class, and I am going to uh, stay in 2022. But history tells me that chances are pretty good he'll probably come for 2021, but I think that this might be the exception because there's already a lot of guards in the class. There's already going to be a lot of guards at Kentucky, and that doesn't factor in all the wing players, all the shooting guards, anybody they get through the grad transfer market. And the fact that they are recruiting one of the top point guards in the class of 2021 named Hunter Salas. And so this is one where my inclination is, even though he committed early, I think he could stay in the class of 2022, although ultimately I do believe, until I hear otherwise, that he'll be in 2021, just because, again, I don't see a lot of kids committing the beginning of their junior year if they plan on being in high school for two more years. I will also say I think this kid is so good that it might not matter, right? Like, he might decide at the end of this year, you know what? I just have nothing left to prove at the high school level. Let me get to college. It'll get me to the NBA faster. I don't really care who's on this roster. I'm going to go to college now. And he might just say, you know what? I like high school. I like spending time with my family. My understanding is this kid has a big family. And he might stay in 2022. Again, my hunch is always going to be that he's going to reclassify up, but we will remain to be seen. But all I'll say is this kid is a really talented player. Kentucky got a real good one. And whatever class he decides to come to, he's going to be a difference maker at the college level, almost certainly for only one year. It's also probably worth noting, he's the first guy to really commit to Kentucky since the NBA bubble. And his parents talked a lot about like, yeah, when we turn on the Kentucky uh, the bubble for every single night and a Kentucky guy was balling out, Jamal Murray, Tyler Hero, uh, blah, 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 Bam Adebayo, Anthony Davis, 
that played a role. They get their guys ready. So he was the first one to really commit after this, and he was the first one to really say that was a factor in his decision, but Kentucky got themselves a real good one. All right, last little topic, and I'm going to get out of here. This one to me is just interesting, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because I don't think most of you really care that much, but I did find it very interesting, and that was that on Saturday, four-star prospect named Dayron Holmes, I believe he's originally from the West Coast, but he's playing for Montverde in Florida, uh, committed. And normally, again, we don't talk a ton of recruiting on here, but what was interesting was this. He had some really big offers, four-star player in the high school class of 2021, so he's a senior now. Had some really big offers. Arizona, Virginia, most of the West Coast. And he actually committed to Dayton. And to me, this is just really interesting for one simple reason. It is amazing how fast narratives in college sports can change, right? Dayton was on no one's radar a year ago, but this kid is kind of a hybrid 4-3-4 in the OB Toppin mold. And he saw what OB Toppin, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, by the way, what OB Toppin did at, uh, at Dayton, and he said, I want to be part of it. And so it's not often that you see a four-star, fringe five-star kid committing to Dayton, but this was one where he saw what they did with Obi Toppin, they saw how he played, and he decided to commit. I thought that was pretty cool. All right, we've gone on way longer than I thought. That Arizona segment alone went way longer than I thought. But I think that's it for today's Aratora Sports Podcast. So I want to thank you guys for listening. And I want to remind you guys all the stuff that I normally do. By the way, it's so late on the West Coast right now. My my brain is fried. So I'm going to get out of here. But make sure you're subscribed. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Also, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron Torres Pod, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. Make sure to follow the Aaron Torres Podcast YouTube channel. And if you've got any questions for the show, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions for gmail.com. Sorry, guys. My brain is fried. I'm getting out of here. I will be back on Tuesday. I hope everybody has a great week. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I'm done, people. We'll talk Tuesday. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.